Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. I want to share a personal experience with you. Earlier today, a dear friend shared with me the gift of her time. In the morning summer July light, as the sun was climbing over the horizon, we walked at a local tract. On gently rolling hills among tall grasses and wild vines and meadow flowers, and lovely trees, young and old. It was our time, a chance to get away from the pressures of daily life, a chance to recharge and rebuild. Thank you, dear friend, you know who you are. The time we spend together walking always gives me renewed energy, a fresh focus, and it generates great new ideas, nourishing the body, the mind, the heart, and the soul. We have all heard these words before. I know we have, but they bear repeating. Humans need to recharge from time to time because energies get depleted and spirits sometimes dip. In today's world of multitasking and high demand for virtually instant responses, carving out a bit of time to top up the batteries can be challenging, but we have to do it. It's essential. No phones, no electronics, being one with nature. If for no more than 30 minutes and having someone you care about and who cares about you at your side, a real bonus. When people separate, the sadness, pressure, and anxiety they often feel make them particularly vulnerable to burnout. That feeling of running on empty, of feeling trapped in some way and without control. It's common and should not be ignored. If you are separated and struggling or know someone who is, consider turning off the world from time to time. It doesn't have to be that long. A half hour here and there. Better yet, schedule that time off in your calendar so you can look forward to it. Make that your standing appointment with yourself. Turn off the phone. 
Go to a place where you feel safe and where your thoughts can slow down, where your breath can become more regular and your inhales and exhales deeper. If there is someone you can bring along, someone you can lean on if you need to, do it. Humans are social animals. Human connections anchor us and make our lives richer. Connecting with others can also help you regain some confidence that things will be okay and that you have a network to rely on if you need it. Let's do some housekeeping before I tackle our topic for today. To begin with, a sincere thank you for all the support I continue to receive. You, the listeners, are making this a very rewarding experience for me. Again, I appreciate it. If something in this podcast has resonated with you, please consider rating it on your favorite app. Ratings make a podcast more visible. This way, others will learn about Saint Split and hopefully find it helpful. Second, if you have any ideas for future episodes, if there's a topic which might interest you, send me an email to aj at jakubowska.ca. You can also find my email address in the episode notes. And to finish off the housekeeping, you might have heard by now that Michelle Obama has launched a podcast. Terrific news, and I will be tuning in for sure. But let me make this point for your consideration. I launched this podcast first. Just saying, maybe Michelle said to herself, if AJ has a podcast, I guess I need one too. Of course, that didn't happen. But a girl can dream. What an inspiration it will be to listen to her podcast. On to today's topic. I'm going to do my best to demystify family mediation for you. What is it? What is it not? Why are so many people talking about it? And why are most people who try it sold on the process? Why might you consider it for your case? A lot of ground to cover. Let me begin by telling you why I chose family mediation as a topic. There are three main reasons. Number one, I am asked about it a lot. Based on some of the questions, I can tell that while many people have a gut feeling about what it is, they would not be able to describe family mediation in any detail And there are many misconceptions out there. This is a chance for me to clarify some misunderstandings and to fill in any gaps. Number two, I am a family mediator in addition to being a lawyer. So family mediation is a method for resolving family disputes with which I'm familiar and about which I can speak firsthand. Third, and perhaps most importantly, I'm a big believer in mediation as a viable, realistic option, a true alternative for resolving family disputes. And I will explain a bit later why I'm such a fan. The first step to understanding what family mediation is might be for us to establish clearly what it is not. Let's do that. 
And my comments here are inspired by some of the questions I receive about the process and what I hear in public. So I want to address some misconceptions right away. Mediation is not a process where people hire a professional to make decisions for them. A mediator is not a decision maker. Some people think of mediation as one-stop shopping, so to speak. They are under the impression that the mediation process, or perhaps the mediator himself or herself, will give them everything they need to make decisions in their case. Tell them what they need to know. Complete forms for them. Again, one-stop shopping. No need for expensive lawyers. No need for a judge to be involved. The mediator does away with all that. The mediation process is seen as a package deal solution. It is not that. Yes, family mediation is potentially a considerably less costly way of dealing with all issues which come up once a relationship ends, but not for the reasons most people think. For example, importantly, the mediator does not provide legal advice to anyone, even though he or she might be a lawyer. I will expand on this later. Mediation is not a process in which anyone can be forced to participate. Depending on where you live, the family court judge in your jurisdiction may have more or less power to order mediation. In Ontario, family court judges have some tools available to them through legislation to have parties participate in an intake session at on-site family mediation, for example. In other words, mediation services available at family courts. But again, no one can be forced into mediation itself. Federal, meaning Canada-wide legislation dealing with divorce and family law, and here I'm talking about the Divorce Act, is being amended, updated. The new version will give family court judges expanded powers when it comes to mediation and will create higher expectations for people who take their disputes to family court to try mediation. But at the moment, a court cannot force anyone to attend. In summary, a key principle of family mediation a foundational principle is that it is voluntary. Let's expand on this point and get into what family mediation actually is. It is a process in which two people in a dispute related to family law <coughs> hire a person, a mediator, to help them discuss work through, and hopefully settle, resolve the dispute. The parties come to the mediation voluntarily. Mediation is an option when parties first separate, even after a court case starts, and even once the case is initially settled or dealt with by the court. But the parties have new issues, or something has changed 
and their old arrangements no longer make sense. Mediation is also available for people who were never in a relationship but have a child together, for example. Grandparents looking for access to their grandkids can also use mediation if there is agreement on using this process. So it's an option for a wide variety of family-related issues. What is the mediator's role? In the simplest of terms, it's to help the parties talk to one another in a way which is productive, structured, organized, directed, and respectful. Talk about the issues which they need to tackle and on which they don't agree. This is the textbook ideal. In practice, as the mediation unfolds, the discussion may be none of those things or some of those things, but not the others. So the dialogue may be structured, for example, the parties have a session set aside to deal just with spousal support, but they end up shouting at one another about something completely unrelated. This is not uncommon and the mediator should be prepared for it and know how to deal with it. Shouting does happen, tempers flare, tears flow. Sometimes people clam up, sometimes they get up and leave. The mediator's job is to moderate such situations. Turn down the heat when it's too hot, give people a chance to say their piece, if that is what is truly needed to get to the next step in the dialogue. People often want and need to say things to one another, get things off their chest, things that have festered for some time. The other person hearing them is important as well. Mediation is an opportunity to do that. Court is not. Sometimes what comes out may be an angry waterfall, an expression of disappointment, betrayal. Getting this stuff out can be cathartic to the speaker, but it definitely cannot be abusive to the listener. An uncontrolled, prolonged torrent of accusations and name-calling. No, but there are couples that truly need to get it out there. Tell the other party how they feel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. A skilled mediator will know how to handle such an exchange, will know how long to permit it to go on, and when it needs to be tamped down. There are situations in which people take positions on issues because they're afraid, concerned about their future, suspicious of the other's motives. I like to use the onion analogy. For a mediation to be successful and to create a long-lasting settlement, the mediator works at peeling the onion, at taking off the layers in a careful but deliberate way to get to the bottom of the dispute. What is causing the parties to view one another the way they do? The mediator, as part of the process, tries to identify what obstacles need to be moved out of the way to allow the parties to reach settlement. Family mediation is an art, not a science. 
The skills, the basic skills can be taught, no question about it. But some mediators have a true talent for guiding people in their discussions and to a settlement. Truly skilled mediators read the room, read the parties and the dynamic between them, and not just what they say, but also their body language and their nonverbal cues. Again, it's like peeling an onion, and yes, sometimes there are tears too. The mediator designs and controls the mediation process. For example, he or she directs in what order issues are tackled. Sometimes it's best to discuss the least complicated, least contentious issues first. If the parties solve those, they are building a bank of accomplishment, a bank of goodwill between them, a record of success in their dialogue, proof that they can agree on things. By the time they move on to the more difficult subjects, they feel they have accomplished something together through dialogue. And that often creates momentum, which helps them tackle the tougher stuff. In some cases, it makes most sense to take on the most difficult and contentious issues first. Why? Because the parties are so conflicted and at odds that unless they get that most difficult issue off the table first, they can't move on to dealing with anything else. Again, a skilled mediator will assess the situation, the dynamic between the parties, and strategize about the process. Such strategizing would also include a decision as to whether the negotiations are to take place with everyone in the same room or whether, at least initially, each side is to have their own space, a breakout room, for example, with the mediator moving between the rooms and using shuttle diplomacy. This can happen both when the parties attend mediation with their lawyers or on their own. I want and need to make an important point before we go any further. Not every family law dispute is right for mediation. Most are, but not all. Before a mediator agrees to become involved in a case, he or she must screen for power imbalance. This is my very strong view, one shared by many fellow mediators, but not by all. Screening for power imbalance is a process which enables the mediator to determine whether the parties are coming to the negotiating table as relative equals. They don't need to be perfect equals, but their bargaining positions cannot be so off balance as to make the negotiation process unfair, unsafe, or harmful. Domestic violence is a factor which plays a key role in screening for power imbalance. And here I am talking not just about physical abuse, but also other forms of pressure, duress, and abuse like verbal, psychological abuse, financial pressure, outright or implied 
threats. There are many others. Domestic violence and screening for power imbalance are very broad and very important topics. This episode is a general overview of family mediation, so I'm going to limit my comments to what I have said about them. But the overriding point is the following. There are cases which are not suitable for family mediation because the parties would be coming to the negotiating table would not be coming to the negotiating table with an actual ability to negotiate, bargain, participate in the dialogue in a genuine, informed, duress-free way. Those situations may require a different kind of process to ensure legal rights and, importantly, personal safety are addressed and protected. A carefully designed screening process, which the mediator carries out before taking on a case or which can be completed by the party's lawyers, will reduce chances that someone will be coming to the mediation clearly disadvantaged from the very start. Let's talk about finding and choosing a family mediator. In one of the earlier episodes, I talked about our internet culture. Like it or not, Google is an important source of information for many, and many mediators have robust websites and blogs to let potential customers know what they're all about, what their approach to family mediation may be. Word of mouth is also an option, and here you may want to speak to someone who has used a family mediator before. Get their feedback. Remember, it takes two to tango when it comes to mediation. Both parties have to agree to use the process. So, if you have found someone you think you like and who you think may work for your case, let the other party know and allow them to do their own research. Then, you can reach out to this person together to get more information. This is the ideal. I want to highlight for you a point which I think is particularly relevant to your mediator search. Here it is. In Ontario, family mediators are not a regulated profession. What does this mean? So for example, lawyers are a regulated profession. We have to be licensed based on standard expectations, a skill set by a regulatory body. A person needs to be licensed as a lawyer to practice law. This is not the case with family mediators. In a very practical sense, this means that virtually anyone can put up a sign in the window of their home saying, I am a family mediator, come and solve your family dispute with me. They do not have to have any specific qualifications. In fact, they do not need to know anything about family law law or mediation for that matter. Why am I telling you this? Because when you are searching for a family mediator, research is key. Suss out people whom you found on the web or who may have heard about. Create a short list. 
then consider actual qualifications and experience. Because family mediators come in all shapes and sizes. And here I mean they come from a variety of professional backgrounds. Some are lawyers, some are social workers or psychologists, others are mental health professionals. Each likely brings a unique skill set to the process. Let's work with some practical examples. You know I love those. Here's one case, a dispute involving a child with special mental health needs. The parties cannot agree on treatment options. Here, they might consider a mediator with a background in children's issues, children's health issues, mental health issues. Here's another theoretical case. We have a successful large business, a high income earner, a trust, multiple rental properties. Here, I would say a mediator with an understanding of these complex issues, including legal issues, may be of greatest assistance. These are points to consider when selecting your mediator. Let me touch on lawyers and family mediation. Where do they fit in, if anywhere, and what if the mediator is a lawyer? Earlier in the episode, I said that the lawyer mediator does not give legal advice, and this is a point which needs to be emphasized over and over again. In my professional life, I wear two hats. One as a family law lawyer, the other as family mediator. When I assist people, I can wear only one of those two hats at a time. So when I'm a family law lawyer, I represent one party and they hire me for my expertise in the field of family law. I give them legal advice. I can never, ever represent two parties at the same time. When I'm a family mediator, I take off my family law lawyer hat. Well, I remain a lawyer and I bring into the mediation my knowledge of the law and my understanding of the legal issues. That is not a button I can turn off. The question is, how do I use that expertise in the mediation process? Well, definitely not to give legal advice to either party. Ideally, and I truly make this point strongly when I mediate, each needs to get their own independent, separate advice on the legal issues involved in the case. When that happens, depends on how the mediation is unfolding, the topics to be tackled, and other factors. So why bother with a lawyer mediator at all? Well, there are some important advantages. My colleagues who are mediators, but not lawyers, would be happy to debate me on this. So, of course, I'm leaving the final decision to you. But here are some important points on this subject. Number one, I'm going to suggest that it helps if the mediator understands the issues in dispute, including the related law. It's not essential, but helpful. That way, the mediation process can be designed 
as effectively as possible, and the mediator can identify what professionals, additional professionals, may have to become involved, like business valuators, real estate appraisers, for example. Does a pension have to be valued? Are there accounting issues involved? Number two, some people, before the mediation starts, empower the mediator to offer opinions on how issues might be resolved based on their experience. This modality, this type of mediation, is called evaluative or directive mediation. In the classic mediation model, the mediator is nothing more than a facilitator of the dialogue. No opinions offered. The parties are not steered by the mediator in any way. There are no potential solutions suggested or offered. In the last several years, with mediation becoming more and more common in family law, including because parties want to try and stay out of court, evaluative mediation is something people turn to more and more frequently. Again, and I stress this, the opinions or suggestions offered by the mediator are not legal advice. Each side remains responsible for vetting any suggestions made by the mediator with their own lawyer to make sure their legal interests are protected. But directive evaluative mediation is becoming more common because parties are looking for finality and they're interested in hearing from experienced family mediators who also happen to be senior family lawyers. What might happen in court if they do not settle? Number three, only lawyers can draft separation agreements. The courts have considered this issue in relation to mediators who are not lawyers. Those who draft separation agreements but are not licensed to practice law are engaged in unauthorized practice of law. An excellent mediator in Oakville, Catherine Paul, wrote a great article about this issue in April 2019. Email me if you are interested in the link. And now for the big finish. Why am I such a fan of family mediation? Why, why do I believe it is a viable way of helping people sort through their issues when relationships end? With the help of structured, respectful, organized, cost-effective dialogue. Here are some of my top reasons. Number one, when people are authors of arrangements about their futures and the lives of their children, they're more likely to respect those arrangements. Family mediation is an opportunity to work together. At the beginning of the process, that might sound odd or strange. What do you mean work together? We do not agree on anything. How can we work together? But a successful mediation, one which results in a settlement of all, or at least some of the issues, 
is a product of joint effort, of working together. When a family court judge has to become involved because the parties are entrenched and no amount of dialogue can bring them closer in their positions, an order sometimes has to be made, which ends the dispute. That is an order made by a judge who in very real terms is a stranger to the family and its issues. That is sometimes necessary. There is no other choice. The deadlock has to be broken somehow, and in this instance, by an order of the court. In this case, the decision is made for the parties, not by them. At mediation, the parties themselves make decisions together. With the help of the mediator, yes, based on legal advice they each receive independently. Number two, in most instances, family mediation is more affordable than going to court. It is also faster from start to finish. And here, I don't want to create unreasonable or unrealistic expectations. A couple separating after 20 years of marriage with kids and property should not expect to settle their case in mediation in one day. It is possible, particularly if lawyers come to the mediation as well, but that should not be thought of as a default. Still, the mediation process is more focused and generally more timely. In terms of timing, at issue are the calendars of the parties, the mediator, and their lawyers if they're coming to the mediation as well. In a court case, timetables also have to take into account the court's availability. And in some jurisdictions, the wait times can be long for reasons which are very difficult to control. Family court judges work very, very hard and hear many cases every day. Resources are stretched and that can account for some delays. Mediation can generally deal with issues in a typical family dispute faster. There are no added costs for wait times, no need to draft what sometimes have to be pretty detailed and labor-intensive court materials, affidavits, and so on. Again, I am not a mediator who insists that every family dispute can and should be mediated. I'm not. There are those who very vocally take this view and who are critical of any family lawyer who turns to a family court judge for assistance. There are cases which require court involvement. There really are. For many others, family mediation is an option, a real option. You might consider it. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.